Well, you might realize this, I hope you do by now, but we have made it to the last chapter and the last message in the book of Acts. 20 weeks we have been at this. Does it feel like 20 weeks? Some of you are like, yes, it does. It does feel like 20 weeks. Hey, please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 28. That's where we're going to be tonight. And while you're turning there, let me just say this briefly, that all throughout the book of Acts, and I hope you've seen this, that the, the Holy Spirit is being poured out on believers. That's really, when you think about the book of Acts, how many times have we read and studied the Holy Spirit came upon them? The Holy Spirit was poured out. This whole book is about the Holy Spirit and the great things that the church did um, through the Holy Spirit. Things were accomplished by God, through, with God through the Holy Spirit, through people. Now, it all started on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples. And what did they do? They went out in the streets and they started preaching, and the Bible says they were preaching in many tongues. What that means in Acts 2 is that the, there were people who spoke all different kinds of languages in Jerusalem, and they could all hear the gospel being preached in their own language. It was quite the miracle. 3,000 people repented and, and chose to follow Christ. They were baptized that very day, and the church was born. The rest of the book of Acts is the story of the Holy Spirit being poured out on the church throughout its first 25 or 30 years of existence. 28 chapters of details about how God changed the world. But there is something very significant that I want all of us to know today about the conclusion of the book of Acts. That the book of Acts ends after 28, chapter 28. But the amazing acts of the Holy Spirit seen in the church did not end in the book of Acts. Are you with me? The book of Acts ends, but the works of the Holy Spirit have not ended. It continues on to this day. God continues to save the lost. God continues to change people's lives again and again and again, year after year, all the way to this day. That's what I love about the book of Acts. It's not the end of the story. It's just the beginning. And we ask God to do it again and again. Uh, a number of years ago, when my, when my son, Neil, who is almost 15 now, but when he was three years old, we made a trip to Disneyland. Who's been to Disneyland before? The one out in California. All right. Well, Neil wanted to ride the roller coasters. But you know what you can't do very much when you're three years of age? Ride very many roller coasters. Just not tall enough. Well, when we went up to Space Mountain, to my shock... Neil, my three-year-old, was just tall enough. He was always been kind of tall for his age, and, and he barely made the height limit. And I'm like, let's go. And he was excited to do it. And so we sit down the roller coasters. We, we, we click ourselves in. Space Mountain and Disneyland, it's where you sit side by side. I know in Disney World, you sit single file. But in Disneyland, you're side by side. So I click them in, and we're like, off we go. And we start up Space Mountain. And you know, as most roller coasters do, you go click, 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 click. You're going up. And it's dark in Space Mountain. Have you, been, have you ridden Space Mountain? It's dark in there. And I kind of forgot. When I was a kid and rode Space Mountain, I forgot how dark it was. And I start to think, maybe this wasn't such a good idea. And so we're getting to the top. We're getting ready to go. And, and, and I instinctively put my hand across Neil's chest going, Oh, Lord, I'm praying. Please don't let this traumatize my son. 
he's probably too young for this. And off we go. And I mean, we're doing all the moves. And, and I'm just sitting there going, Neil, it's going to be okay. I promise you're going to be fine. And, and, and I'm not enjoying the ride at all, okay, because I'm worried about my son. And we finally get to the end and, the, and we get back into the light and my son's eyes are literally this big. He'd never experienced anything like this before. And we get out and I hold him. I said, Neil, I'm so sorry. I should not have done that. You're too young for that. It was just too, too wild. And I'm so sorry. And, and, and he looks up at me and he's like, let's do it again. Let's do it again, dad. You know, when I think about the book of Acts, isn't that what we want God to do? What we've studied? Let's do it again. Let's do it again and again and, and again. Another Pentecost where we see 3,000 people saved in one day. Who doesn't want to see that again? I do. How, how about another persecutor of Christians giving his life to Jesus and becoming a great evangelist? Don't you want to see that again? More and more Christians um, across the nation following Jesus. Don't you want to see another evangelism explosion across the Middle East? Wouldn't you want to see that again? I would. More Christians gathering together, devoted to the Word of God, to fellowship, to remembering the death of Christ, focused on prayer again and again and again. May we pray, Almighty God, do it again. Last week, we left off with Paul being shipwrecked on the island of Malta while on his way to Rome. Now, you might recall Paul was traveling to Rome because he had made his appeal to Caesar. That was after sitting in jail in Caesarea for two whole years, not being found guilty. These trumped up charges, nothing, you know, was, was true. So he makes his case, says, I want to go to Rome. I want to appeal to Caesar, which was his right as a Roman citizen. Now, if you weren't able to be here last week, I just want to encourage you to go back and read Acts chapter 27 and, and, and pay attention to the details of this voyage to Rome that ended in this horrific shipwreck. It truly was by God's grace that nobody lost their lives in that shipwreck. I wish we had time to cover every detail today of the rest of his journey to Rome, because if we had more time, I'd spend a lot more time on this detail where they're on Malta, they're stuck there, they got to spend the winter there. It's this day that we, the Bible tells about, it's raining, it's cold, Paul goes to get wood for the fire that was already going, and, and have you read this part? A venomous snake jumps out and it latches onto Paul's hand. Do you guys remember this detail? And, and, and the detail we learn in verse 6 of chapter 28 is that Paul, it, like, he raises his hand, it's just dangling there, okay? And it's just sh dangling like that. And I, I can't even imagine this, the Bible calls it a viper, it's a venomous snake. I can't even imagine how terrifying for me that would be. Because I don't know about you, but I hate snakes. Now, I don't want to offend anybody with what I'm going to say, and I probably shouldn't say it, but I'll do it anyway. If you ask me, there is no such thing as a good snake. They're all bad. Who's with me? Like the only good snake is a dead snake, all right? Are we, are we together on this? Now, I don't mean to offend anybody. I, I just, I hate snakes. Last week, um, we were driving home and it was almost dark outside. And, and just around the corner from my house, I didn't see it until the last second. But there was a snake in the middle of the road and my family was with me, and of course I'm driving, and I'm like, did you just see that, kids? Did you, there's a snake, I think it was a copperhead, in the middle of the road. I don't know, have you ever seen one of those in the middle of the road? First for me. 
So I, I did what every father does uh, when they see a copperhead on the road. You, you turn around and go look at it. <laughs> I wasn't trying to hit it, but I thought I hit it. And so I wanted to go back and see if I squished it good enough to do society a good deed. And um, uh, like I said, I wasn't aiming for it, but I thought I got it. And so I backed up, and I wasn't, well, this time I was aiming for it, but um, I, I didn't hit it exactly. And it was just sitting there in the road, and, and um, it looked kind of squished to me. And so all of us jump out of the van. You know, it's, it's around 8.45 or 9, so there is no traffic in Bella Vista that time of night. So we, we, we're, we're getting out, and we're walking up to this snake, and it's just like, I got a picture up, because my, my wife's always filming our life. And um, that is a copperhead, right? That, okay, I, I thought it was. So that's it, and I'm walking up to this thing, and it kind of looks not dead, and so my kids, hold on, <laughs> I don't think this is dead. So I grabbed a stick and I threw it at it, you know, because that's what all brave dads do, you know, we throw it. And it hit it and this thing went, boom, and it took off. And I jumped like out of my shorts, like this high. And I ran for my life, okay? Because I hate snakes. So I, I can't even imagine a venomous snake attaching itself to my hand. Um, and just dangling there. But that's what happened to Paul. And, and the Bible says he just shook it off. And everybody, everybody watched this and they were sure he was gonna die. And there's this conclusion that they came to. Well, he escaped the shipwreck, but like he can't escape this. Obviously he's meant to die, but nothing happens to him. There's all these opinions that start, you can read about it in the text, all these opinions about Paul. And some people even think he's a God because of this. Now it's interesting Paul, there's no record of Paul ever defending himself on any of this stuff. He just lets his actions talk for him. And what happens after this? It opens the door for all kinds of ministry. He heals people. They're there for three months. I mean, God uses this thing to open the doors for incredible ministry. It's pretty awesome. I wish we could just spend a lot more time on that, but we need to move on. They spend their winter there in Malta. They find another ship. They continue their journey, and Paul eventually makes it to Rome. Do you got your Bibles open? I would like for you to look at the last part of verse 14, and that's where we're going to start reading today. It says this, And so we came to Rome. The brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum of Apias and the three taverns to meet us. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Have you heard of the phrase or have you ever said it? And I think we probably, most of us have, when you say to somebody, man, you are a sight for sore eyes. Have you ever said that to somebody? You know that feeling? These brothers and sisters who had heard that Paul was coming to Rome, they traveled a pretty good distance just to to be with him, support him, encourage him. And I've got to imagine that Paul was like, you guys are a sight for, 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 for sore eyes after being in jail, after being on a shipwreck and being on Malta. And I mean, I mean, I'll tell you, Christians coming to the aid of others is a sight for sore eyes. That's how Luke described it. Paul thanked these people, and he was greatly encouraged. I just want to make a quick point here that you can never underestimate just simply your presence being of great encouragement to people. And I think about the family of God and what it is that we're all about and, and your presence to somebody's life. It's huge. 
I think of things like simple hospitality, kindness, generosity of believers. They are all powerful ways that God shows himself in this world. Paul was greatly encouraged. You have that same kind of ability and that ministry as these Christians who didn't even know Paul. What an encouragement to him. Well, a few days after getting to Rome, Paul asked for some of the Jewish leaders in Rome to come over to the house because he's not in a prison cell. He's actually like under house arrest. One guard is there. And he begins to explain to them everything that happened. And it was news to them. They hadn't heard that Paul was coming. Um, they hadn't received any letters from Jerusalem or about anybody who was upset with Paul. They, they were just kind of intrigued by Paul. And God gave Paul an audience with all of these new people, just like that. Now look at verse 23. I'm summarizing some pieces here, but if you look at verse 23, they arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and they came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God from the law of Moses and from the prophets. He tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. These types of conversations with all these different kinds of people, they went on for another two whole years, just like this. Now, if you're doing the math, how long has Paul been a prisoner now? He spent two years in Caesarea, two years now in Rome, and then there was that journey that took a number of months in between. He's get going on five years now of being a, a prisoner um, um, in chains for a crime he didn't commit, never being found guilty. But if you're paying attention to these last few chapters, God has used this environment to give him multiple opportunities to preach the gospel to all kinds of different people that you might argue he may never would have had that opportunity had he not been in this situation. It's a great reminder to me. God can use any situation you're in for his glory. And you might be experiencing something difficult right now. And God's only positioning you so that you can do something else for him down the road. I see that all over Paul's story. If you look at verse 30, it says, For two whole years Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And with that and just like that, the book of Acts comes to an end. And if this is the very first time that you have ever read the book of Acts and the very first time you've come to the very end, you might be thinking this thought right now. Um, and then what happened? And what's the rest of the story? You probably have questions. Is that it? Did he ever get to make his case to Caesar? Did, did they let him go? I mean, what, what, what happened? Did, did he win? We don't know. Maybe you're like thinking, okay, maybe, well, if he was released from, from jail, what happened next? Where's, where's second Acts? <laughs> you know, have you ever thought that? Where's the second book of Acts? The reality is this, and I hate to burst your bubble, nobody really knows what happens next. It's kind of a big mystery, to be honest with you. Luke doesn't tell us. You know, many have speculated that, that speculated that Luke doesn't tell us what happens next simply because it's not relevant to the message of the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the unleashing of the Spirit and the first 25, 30 years of the church, this is what happened. And, and maybe, maybe Luke didn't include any other details. It just wasn't relevant. Um, others have suggested that Paul was put to death at the end of those two years and Luke just decided not to include that. 
into the message of the book of Acts, and we just don't, we don't know why Luke decided to end it right there. I mean, he just says, with all boldness and without hindrance, Paul preached the gospel. We do know, however, that during these two years, while Paul was under house arrest in Rome, he wrote the New Testament books of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. These four books of the New Testament are commonly referred to as the prison epistles. The reason we call them the prison epistles is because Paul is in prison when he writes them. Some have suggested, and I think there's actually evidence for this, so if you read other parts of the New Testament, it kind of it kind of it leads to this conclusion that many have argued, I think many people believe, that Paul was released after a couple years in Rome, um, and he went on to Spain. If you read the book of Romans, you're going to find a reference in Romans chapter 15, verse 24, where he says, my plan is to eventually make it all the way to, to Spain. And many people believe that uh, after two years in Rome, he was released, even though we don't have the details of that, and he goes on to Spain and it was during that time, as he goes to Spain, and there's a few more years in there, that he writes the letters of Timothy and Titus. They believe it happened during that time. Um, the thinking is that several years later, Paul was arrested again, but this time, his situation has changed drastically. The second arrest, if that's what happened, he's not under house arrest anymore. He doesn't have any of these freedoms, but he is in chains. He is in prison. He is treated like a criminal. He writes another letter to Timothy. This one would be 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16, and 2 Timothy 2, verse 9. He talks about how winter is coming, and he asks if Timothy would bring his cloak. There, there's... Um, there's a number of details in here. It's like, this doesn't sound like his arrest in Rome. This sounds like much dire circumstances. There are some other circumstances we read about where, where Demas forsakes him. Only, there comes a point where only Luke is with him. We read that in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, there's the family of uh, Onesiphorus ministered to his needs. We read about that in 2 Timothy. But he longed for Timothy. He longed for Mark to come and be by his side. Paul seems to know. If you read 2 Timothy, it does seem to have this feeling that Paul knows his time is short. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, Paul writes this, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also all who have longed for his appearing." You know, church tradition, you know, what's kind of been passed down for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. Church tradition tells us that Paul died in Rome somewhere around 67 and 68 A.D. under the insane Emperor Nero. Remember that crazy guy? But let me say again, what actually happened to Paul his last few years, um, there's some speculation there. We really don't know. You might be wondering, why am I telling you all this? Why am I sharing with you what some of the most popular thinking is on the rest of Paul's life? Well, first of all, I wanted there to be some kind of conclusion to Paul's life. So many things in the book of Acts happened um, that have his name attached to it, and I wanted you to know what the most popular thinking is about what happened to Paul. But secondly, I want to share that with you because even though Paul was in chains for a good part of the rest of his life, the gospel was unchained. The life of Paul did come to an end, but the cause of Christ 
it continues on. And the book of Acts really was only the beginning of the story. The unleashing of the Holy Spirit onto the world. Well, that continues on. Right now, right here at New Life Christian Church, we are part of that continuing story of God, the gospel being unchanged, and there's no stopping what God can do. And right here in this room, we're a part of it. The book of Acts just never ends. It just keeps going. Paul might have been in chains, but the good news of Jesus is not, and it continues on. I think the question for us to wrestle with is not, I wonder if God is going to do something special through this group of believers here in Northwest Arkansas. I don't know if that's the right question to ask, to be honest with you. I think the right question for us to ask is this, do you really believe that Jesus died, was buried, and raised to life? That's the real question. Do you really believe that salvation is found absolutely and only in Jesus? Because that's what the first Christians believed. That's what we learn in the book of Acts. That message is what continues on. It's that faith that helped them endure all kinds of persecution all kinds of prison, all kinds of pain. That's what helped them endure even the worst circumstances that even led to their death. They were convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you know, I look back at the beginning of the book of Acts. Peter and others, they state very clearly what they're all about. In Acts chapter two, on the day of Pentecost, around verse 32, Peter says this, that God has raised this Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses of it, exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. A couple verses later, Peter goes on to say, Therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And my question for all of us at the very end of the book of Acts is this. Just how strongly do you believe that today? How strong is that faith in you? And I wonder, is it possible to even measure just how strongly you believe that today? I think there are some things we can ask ourselves that speak to that. Like we can ask ourselves this, when was the last time you prayed? When was the last time you got down on your knees and you just looked up to God and you said, God, I am all yours and whatever you want out of my life, you can have it. I'm totally 100% all yours. Have you ever prayed a prayer like that before? It might be a measurement of how strongly you believe in the resurrection of Jesus. When was the last time you responded to a need and you were looking for nothing in return? Literally, it's the Christian thing to do. I'm going to go help my brother. I'm going to help my sister. Do you allow yourself ever to be inconvenienced for the advancement of the good news? Or do you find yourself really like, well, I can fit that in next Friday at 4? When was the last time you invited a friend to church? When was the last time you had a conversation with somebody about how God has changed your life and saved you? When was that last conversation? Do you actively serve the Lord in some capacity? And I'm not just here anywhere. I'm like, what do you do that's got God's name attached to it? What do you do? Do you give generously from your first fruits or do you find yourself giving from your leftovers or not at all? 
Do you resist sin? Do you stand for righteous things? I mean, I, I could keep going, but I just ask you, how strongly do you believe today that Jesus rose from the dead? Because that belief is what drove everything that we're reading about in the book of Acts, that fundamental faith. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Peter, he was under arrest at the time, and he said this about Jesus. He said, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. The book of Acts, it's this testimony of how a small group of people who really believe that, God used them to change the world. God used them to change you. What if, what if there's a group in Bella Vista, Arkansas, who gathered for worship every weekend, I don't know, let's say somewhere, let's just pick a random spot, Reardon Road. I don't know, around the 103rd block. If you don't know what I'm talking about, that's our church's address. What, what if there's a group of people that met all the time who really believe that too? And not just say they believe it, but I mean really believed it. And they really love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And Because you see, a group like that, they're the ones whose acts, with the help of the Holy Spirit, change the world. There, there's just no telling what God can do with people like that. There's this remarkable woman by the name of Tilly Burgeon, and I've actually talked about her before. You might remember this. Um, Tilly started a, a, a mission in Arlington called Mission Arlington. And for, for several years, Tilly, she served as a missionary in Korea, and then she came back to the United States, and she found herself working as a school administrator in Arlington, Texas. In 1986, she started looking around the needs in Arlington, and she had this idea. It just hit her. Why can't we treat the people of Arlington the same way we pe treat people on the mission field, like in Korea? Why can't we bring that same mentality here? And her mission was very simple back then. It was take the church to people who aren't going to church, all right? You can get on their website, read all about this for yourself. It's a remarkable ministry. As she ventured out to go meet people and try to understand the needs of her community, she was immediately challenged by a group of Jehovah's Witnesses who were out on the streets talking to people. And she was bothered by the fact they confronted her and they told her she needed to back off and she needed to quit. This was their territory. And she said this, you need to get back inside the walls of your church where you belong. Wow, that's interesting. Well, it lit a fire in her because the church doesn't stay inside the walls. It's not supposed to. Today, all these years later, uh, by the effort of, of, of Tilly, she just, she just began little by little, these, these ministries begin to grow and, and take off. And, and today, Mission Arlington comprises of hundreds of communities in these house churches with thousands of people in attendance serving even more than that every week in Arlington. And they offer such things, all with Jesus's name attached to it, all for the purpose of spreading the good news. They, they offer things like um, help with food and clothing and furniture and school supplies, medical and dental care, school transportation, child and adult daycare, after-school programs for hundreds of kids at over 50 locations, 
counseling, conversational English classes, citizenship classes, job assistance. The list goes on and on. It even, they even have rooms for people who are underemployed that find themselves working at different odd hours from day and night. They give them a place to sleep during the day if they need to get a little rest between jobs. Each day, hundreds of people will go through their center and they've all got all these different variety of needs and those needs are met and then all these geographically located house churches, um, they reach out to these people and invite them to church and try to minister to them and teach them the gospel. Last Thanksgiving, I read that Mission Arlington delivered turkey and ham and food baskets and cooked meals to homes of, get this, 6,224 families. And that represents a number of 25,684 people who received a Thanksgiving meal in the Arlington area who would go without on Thanksgiving. And they started doing this after realizing that people would rather eat with their families in their homes rather than some center somewhere or some shelter. And they do this only for the opportunity to have a conversation about Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world because they really believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Last year, more than 32,000 children received Christmas gifts through their Christmas store, and they got to hear the Christmas story. Hundreds of people indicated that they wanted to follow Jesus after hearing the Christmas story that day. I, I, I read things like that, and it makes me say, don't ever underestimate what God can do through people who really believe that Jesus died, was buried, and rose to life. People who really believe in salvation being found in Jesus alone, and they're willing to be used of God in whatever way that God wants to use them. Now, your story, it may not be as dramatic as Tilly Burgeon's story. You may never start a ministry that reaches thousands of thousands of people for Christ every year, but you can start right now by making the difference for Christ in one person's life. And that would not be any less significant. One person. If you're taking notes today, I think this would be a really good thing to write down. I want you to realize that what I do for God is not based on who I am, but who Jesus is through me. Now just think about that for a minute. What I do for God is not based on who I am, but who Jesus is through me. The power, the ability to share Jesus in practical ways, that comes from Christ. That comes from the Holy Spirit. Paul knew this even when he was in prison. He, 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 he knew and experienced the power of Christ's work. It's why I think he says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, a very famous verse, I can do all things through who? Through Christ who strengthens me. It's not so much about what we do. It's about what the Lord does through us. People who really believe that Jesus died and he rose to life. People who really believe with all their heart that salvation is found in Jesus alone. I read about a Sunday school teacher one time who asked her class, she was trying to teach them a lesson, and she asked her class, hey, if I sold my car... And if I had a big garage sale and I gave all the money to the church, would that get me into heaven? And all these little grade school kids all shout, no, that wouldn't do it. 
And then she said, well, what if I cleaned the church every day and I mowed the church yard, I kept everything neat and tidy, could I go to heaven then? And all the kids answered, no, no, no. And, and, and the teacher says, well, well what do I got to do to get to heaven? What needs to happen in my life? And some little five-year-old boy raised his hand, the only one, and he goes, you got to die. <laughs> you got to die to go to heaven. That was not the answer, by the way, she was looking for. And that little five-year-old boy had no idea what an incredible theological point he made. You have to die. And in doing so, what you do is you die to yourself. It's like saying, it's not about me. It's not about what I can do. It's not about what my wants, my desires. Lord, it's what you want. It's what you can do through me. And in, in many ways, that little boy was right. You want to go to heaven? You got to die to yourself. And you got to make Jesus number one. Do you believe with all your heart that Jesus died, that he rose again? That's the faith that drove everything we see in the book of Acts. Finally, I just want to tell you that the night before Jesus dies, he, he prays for this to happen in the lives of believers. And I'm going to read this out of the message paraphrase. I just love the way it is. It's seven, John 17, 21 just says this. The goal is for all of them to become one heart and mind, just as you, Father, and are in me and I in you, so they might be one heart and mind with us. Then the world might believe that you, in fact, sent me. I love the book of Acts. I think it makes us ask the most important question that we could ever ask. Do I really believe with all my heart that Jesus died and rose to life? What do you believe?